Hello, friends. Welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Allison Coton, an interaction designer at EPAM Continuum. If you were a programmer in the 1960s, or like me, a graduate student in dynamic media in the 2010s, you might have met Eliza. She's a therapist in the Rogerian School, so you'll often hear her say, and how does that make you feel? Or tell me more about that. In fact, that's pretty much all you'll ever hear her say, because she's one of the early chatbots, programmed to keep a text conversation going by prompting her therapeutic subject with open-ended questions. To converse with Eliza is fundamentally to converse with yourself, a sort of cross between stream-of-consciousness journaling and those thoughts that only seem to come to you in the shower. Depending on who you are and how much you can suspend disbelief, a strange kind of self-knowledge can emerge from these one-sided conversations. Or can it? In today's episode, our Ken Gordon talks with Hannah Zeven, lecturer in the Departments of English and History at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of the book The Distance Cure, History of Teletherapy. They talk about everything from Freud's early correspondence to the seemingly ever-present virtual therapy platforms of our pandemic life. Eliza may be just a historical curiosity today, but real questions remain about how distance and digital mediation affect the therapeutic relationship, perhaps even enhance it. It's not like burying ourselves over time and distance in service of deeper self-knowledge is a new phenomenon of our digital age. We just have access to a broader range of tools to make it possible. How are those tools enabling our therapeutic work, and how do they grant access and change the relationship between therapist and patient? Let's hear Ken and Hannah talk us through the spectrum of experience of remote therapy, from hotlines to Zoom therapy to parasocial relationships and celebrity advice. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Ken. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh my God, I'm so excited to talk to you about the distance cure. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about it uh, from the distance from Boston to, I guess you're in Berkeley, is that right? I'm in Oakland at this very minute. All right, so so we're we're definitely speaking long distance uh, through a special medium of um, Zencaster and already. Yes. So let's begin. The distance cure defines uh, teletherapy as those therapies facilitated by a class of techniques and tools that allow patients to communicate with clinicians or volunteers or machines, not in their physical proximity at the time of communication. Could you please tell our listeners how long this this teletherapy has been around? Thanks so much. Yeah. So The Distance Cure, really what it's doing as a book is trying to re-describe the history of clinical therapy uh, via its shadow form, teletherapy. Um, and so that that sort of large and uh, open definition of teletherapy that you just gave from my book, Ken, allows for that redescription. Um, teletherapy has existed uh, long before our current moment uh, in the age of quote unquote big tech. And of course, in, in this moment of global pandemic, I argue that in fact, the first psychoanalysis, uh, the first analytic encounter happened over distance using the letter uh, with Freud himself as correspondent. So it's really accompanied the entire history of clinical psychology in many forms. Totally. Now, um, one of the things that's interesting is that you are inviting us to take a different kind of look at what therapy can be in your book. And you're asking us to see beyond the sort of traditional patient-therapist dyads. Instead, you say we should notice those triads composed of patients, uh, therapists, uh, broadly defined, and communication technology, the means of which uh, they connect and disconnect. 
And this kind of, to me, upends that sort of traditional uh, asymmetry of therapeutic anxiety, right? Mm. In this context, it's the therapists who are anxious uh, <laughs> about the idea of treatment at a distance, and it's the patients who are becoming really quite empowered uh, once that traditional frame of therapy gets busted. Was this kind of patient empowerment and kind of uh, therapist humbling part of your intent, or was it just a pleasant side effect of your historical research? Oh, that's a great question, Ken. So, you know, that's again part of this redescription. I write a lot about money uh, at the opening of the book, precisely because what drew me to the materials that now are the distance cure, oh, maybe a decade ago, is that while therapy is excruciatingly expensive, even for the people who manage to pay for it, by and large, um, there are some for whom that is not the case, but by and large, therapy is excruciatingly expensive in the United States context and beyond. Sure. Teletherapy, by contrast, has up until, say, the last six years or so, been free or reduced extremely low fee in its longer history. And that's because it does do what you're saying. It's often patient-led, though not exclusively. Um, it's part of the story both radically and problematically of the devaluation of therapeutic expertise, radically when, say, it creates a space away from psychiatry and its you know, powers, and problematically when it turns us into always-on clinicians, say, in our present. Mm -hmm. um, but that was, it was the fact of its low cost or freeness. That's what drew me in originally. Yeah. Uh, now, at times, um, the distance cure reminded me, and bear with me on this one, of Harold Bloom writing about the anxiety of influence. <laughs> strengthens a weakened poems. Uh, the anxiety of mediation, right? Yeah. What, what made me think about this was like you were showing how uh, therapeutic, by showing how therapeutic mediation works, a factor the therapist either can't or won't see, you're sort of challenging clinician authority. And you write, to protect supposed purity of the dyadic model of therapy, practitioners since Freud have almost completely resisted reflecting on these channels. My aim has been to do just the opposite, you write. Yes. I have to ask, have, have uh, practicing therapists, the one you didn't quote in the book, the ones you don't know, how have they reacted to this idea? Well, you know, I think I have to back up in order to answer that question, which is to say, like I just said, that I was at work on the book for about a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, the book was done before the pandemic. Yeah, um, It was accepted uh, through peer review at MIT just as we went into lockdown in 2020. And it had been submitted the previous year. So, you know, if, if I argue throughout the book that historically teletherapy has been therapy shadow form, this is obviously no longer the case, especially not in the U.S. context. Yeah. Um, some clinicians are back in office. Some never left, actually. Um, but by and large, tele is the dominant form. And there are lots of pressures uh, making that the case sort of more permanently than just emergency measures. So by the time the book has come out, I've been very moved. Um, by and large, what people say is actually, yes, it's been very challenging to move to, say, Zoom. I miss my office. Uh, this has been really kind of traumatic for me. But being supplied the history of this as not just a rupture, right? Not just like, oh, now there's technology and there never was before has been like a solve uh, on that pain for some clinicians. Um, I hear that again and again. I've also heard, right, like, well, but I hate Zoom. Yep. 
And I say right back, yes, and in fact, me too. <laughs> but, but that Zoom, again, I'm asking us to reframe what it is we're hating when we're hating Zoom. So that's not to say Zoom fatigue doesn't exist because of certain um, sort of affordances of the platform or some of its privacy problems or it being a corporate platform in the first place, but that there are other things being carried by the screen, just as there were other things being carried uh, by the radio in Algeria during the war for liberation that Fanon is writing about, mm -hmm. just as there are other things being carried by the telephone on the earliest suicide hotlines. And that, that argument seems to have landed. Good. Clinicians seem to be most freaked out by or unnerved by calling all of these forms teletherapy. Uh -huh. I get that. I get that. Um, I have to ask you about the idea of fantasy because it's, it's mentioned again and again in the distance cure. For example, you talk about Freud fleece correspondence as a fantasy of two-way communication covering the reality of turn-based monologue, which, which to my mind brought to mind something Fran Liebowitz once said, which is the opposite of talking isn't listening. The opposite of talking is waiting. Now, mm. your narrative moves through sort of successively more sophisticated versions of teletherapy, let's say, until we reach today's world of social media and Zoom calls and such. We seem to have moved away from that fantasy of correspondence to some real-time, on-demand, rich media, two-way communication. Or have we? Do you think we've actually come to that part where we're, we're engaged in legitimate, uh, authentic two-way communication? Or is there something we're missing here in this sort of contemporary mediation? Thank you so much. So Ken, that's like, that's several questions at once and I'm going to do my very best. So the role of fantasy, just to back up, yeah. is that routinely, right? So if I argue that Freud and subsequent practitioners bracketed mediation, even as they were playing with it, part of that is because the way they played with mediation was by fantasizing being together in the room. And so they run over and over again, the idea of being together through whatever distanced medium they're using. For Freud, he's constantly saying to his best friend and later enemy, and here I argue, proto-psychoanalyst Wilhelm Fleece, right. you know, I have a good hour to chat right now. Well, of course, there's no hour or not hour in the letter. Mm -hmm. People stop and start writing all the time in Freud's moment and in ours. But that was the feeling that he was conveying in his writing. And that's one of the examples of fantasy or on the hotline, right? The idea of someone close and in one's ear and holding you sort of metaphorically speaking is a fantasy. You don't know what the person's doing on the other end of the phone. Or in fact, you might be repressing what you think they're doing on the other end of the phone because you sure. need a certain kind of help. Sure. So the book is not, it is organized, I'll just say in brief, from 1890 approximately when Freud starts this correspondence with Wilhelm Fleece through to the, the pandemic and the uprisings of 2020. I was able to add a coda at the very end, um, written sort of in the first few months of the pandemic pandemic era 1.0, um, 2020. And, you know, between there, we move from Freud to broadcast radio to the suicide hotline, as I've mentioned in the fifties and sixties to, um, the earliest and, and elusive attempts to make an AI therapist in the sixties, seventies, and through to our present. And then lastly, e-therapy, which starts in the 1980s. Uh, and now is you know, inherited by platforms like Talkspace and BetterHelp, 
which I deal with at the end of my book. So I, I argue quite explicitly that it could sound like, right, that we've exchanged the letter for the broadcast and developed in this kind of techno determinist, like one and then the other and then the other telos. But it's not the case. Uh, one thing that was so cool was that uh, during the pandemic, folks wrote to me and said, what do you think about sending letters to my analyst, my therapist? I, I don't want to talk in front of my boyfriend, girlfriend, or mom uh, in the sort of early lockdown. What if we returned to the letter? You know, and that was a creative impulse that folks had. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that, by and large, we aren't writing letters to our therapists. I think that is also <laughs> probably factually true. Um, but I think that no matter what, communication is nearly impossible, whether it's two-way and synchronous or one-way and uh, asynchronous. And that that's really at the core of what people deal with in psychodynamic treatment. And it is also what we deal with as daily habitual users of media as well. For sure, for sure. One of the uh, things that really interested me in your book was the uh, all the great stories you had about artificial intelligence and therapy. And there are just so many of them, and you go into such great detail, detail about them. I was curious, which is your favorite one and why? Oh, thank you. I mean, you know, so I, I don't know if it's proper for a historian to have little favorite moments, but I totally do. I totally do. Um, there's this, <laughs> so I just like say that. Um, there there was, um, uh, and part of it is because of what happens in the archive when you encounter that material. Um, one thing that I had to do in the distance cure was elaborate an archive where sometimes there wasn't one. And one tool I used amongst many was to do oral histories with people who had been involved in these developments. So I got to speak with Warner Slack, who was a professor at Harvard who passed away a few years ago, who was very instrumental in developing AI for telemedicine, even more so than teletherapy. Uh, But his younger brother is a, a man named uh, Warren Slack, who I wasn't able to track down, although apparently he is still living. And he built in the 1950s a tape recorder at also Harvard um, in the kind of wild psychedelic era of Timothy Leary and friends <laughs> to um, help induce people to speak to themselves, like to talk out loud to make them feel better. And his whole experiment was making this kind of jerry-rigged tape recorder that I would be doing a really good job at this experiment right now, where as much as you talk, a tally goes higher. And then he passed these out to teenage gang members, his term, uh, in Cambridge. (laughs) They loved it. They were paid based on how much they talked. So they talked a lot. And they reported back to him that actually they felt better for having used this sort of strange device. And so that became the basis for how I conceptualize what happens when we engage a kind of AI therapy or scripted therapy, whether or not it actually involves an algorithm or any machine learning. And in the book, I call this sort of sensation auto-intimacy. That would be the favorite. Well, let's talk about auto-intimacy then, which you define as a closed circuit of self-communication run through a relationship to a media object. Now, that sounds very much to me like the state in which many of the young people I know are currently living. You also write that human-computer therapy cannot provide the kind of self-knowledge gained through long interpretive relationship with a human other, 
but aims to provide the same kind of self-knowledge uh, by instructing itself to, as uh, Charles Slack discovered, soliloquize through a, a medium and then listen to or read that soliloquy. Do you find that your students, the, those digital natives that are in your classroom, uh, approach auto-intimacy differently from, let's say, yourself or your peers? Or is maybe auto-intimacy a kind of universal condition in the year 2022? I think that's a great question. So I think what, what the Slack brothers both show us, and they each really contributed to this, um, Charles maybe earlier and through his his strange tape recorder, um, <laughs> and worn more forcefully later in his career as far as I can trace, is that, that I, I think that auto-intimacy is something that has been increasingly encouraged. It's part of gamification. Right, It's part of being entreated to engage with a thing at duration to generate data. Um, and that in these early moments in the 50s and 60s, it's a different world, that circuit. Um, I also talk about auto-intimacy as not actually from or originating in the digital. Mm -hmm. Right, We have examples of auto-intimacy with ourselves, uh, some of which I can say on a broadcast, like when a baby sucks one's thumb, right? It's standing in for a real source of nourishment, uh, either a bottle or a breast, but it's not providing that nourishment. It's providing something else. And we don't actually think that the baby sucking its thumb is a bad thing, right? It has to do with self-soothing. It has to do with managing frustration, building frustration tolerance, but it's not the same kind of nourishment. That's how auto-intimacy starts. I think that's how it's patterned. I know that's like a very sort of theoretical answer. Mm -hmm. But then there are reasons you would hook into that impulse in a human and profit off of them. And that's quite separate. So I don't know about my students. Um, you know, actually, it's very strange. I've gone in and out of the classroom for the last three years in such a way that I, I don't have as thick a sense as I used to, especially teaching large lecture courses of what my students' media use is looking like right now, uh, as I did before the pandemic or even a little bit last semester in person. But I do know as a sort of what, um, I'm 31 years old, so middle millennial, um, that that definitely has been something that has increased, right? And that that one can feel when one enters into that zone of sort of self-relationality run through another object that's really not about a kind of deep sense of, you know, psychological reflexivity as would be in a psychodynamic therapy. And that makes sense because all of the kinds of therapies that rely on this kind of auto-intimacy don't care. They're not interested at all in something called the unconscious or interested in that kind of psychodynamic work. They have a much different aim. And that's really what that chapter focuses on is the turn away from psychodynamics to something quite else. Okay. Now I'm warning you now, I'm going to have to talk one more time about Harold Bloom, but this will be the final time I do this. <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. go ahead. <laughs> the quest for self-knowledge through self-overhearing takes me back to Bloom, who said in his famous uh, Paris Review interview that Shakespeare, of all people, gives his characters speaking out loud, whether to themselves or to others or both, and then brooding out loud, whether to themselves or to others or both, on what they themselves have said. And then in the course of pondering, undergoing a serious or vital change, they become a, a different kind of character or personality or even a different kind of mind, right? Do you think that sort of our contemporary uh, communications tools are making it easier or harder to overhear ourselves? And, and I, I will bring this one step 
uh, away from Bloom and talk about Microsoft Teams, which I don't know if you use Teams much, but recently you've been able, they've uploaded, they've upgraded it so that you can both record the Microsoft Teams meetings you've had and instantly transcribe them just by hitting a button. And it's a, it's a, for me, uh, an amazing kind of tool and opportunity for people to really understand uh, the words they're saying in, in the moment and to reflect on them and to really, if you were so inclined, to, um, to grow through uh, self-overhearing. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that kind of thing. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I want to look at the Bloom quote much more carefully before I, before I spoke directly to it. Uh, but... Um, Yes. So, I mean, I just actually have lots of questions in response to that question, what, which would be like, well, is it self-overhearing or self-overreading uh, in the case of Microsoft Teams? I think we're getting lots and lots of kinds of immediate feedback, yeah. um, whether that's in the case of some of the apps I write about that nudge you and say, yeah, I, I the app. <laughs> just overheard you. Um, Amazon Cares app, for instance, will say, uh, be more positive. Uh, you know, and that's, that's a kind of auto intimate response that of course is driven by a kind of corporate push to prepare its workers to be more fit for work. Um, or that kind of reading in teams. I also think that that can make, um, it can really arrest creativity and spontaneity to have that much feedback. I mean, there's a reason why the analyst is enjoying not to uh, interpret immediately, yeah. right? But to allow for a kind of free association. And that to me sounds like the death of it. <laughs> um, I don't, but I think there are, there are reasons why also those scripts are enabled, right? They have to do with uh, keeping track of meetings and of course access. Um, so I'm not like condemning them. I don't know what the impulse was in, in Microsoft Teams, but if we thought about that in a kind of therapeutic frame, even with the self, it might be too immediate. It might be much too much. Um, I also, I'm not a fan of that kind of self-correction, right? Uh, that doesn't sound very productive <laughs> to me. It sounds more frightening, right? Like, what did I just say? And a kind of way of inducing anxiety or my speech is always permanent. Um, and that was something that was very fascinating in The Distance Cure was that it made it a hard history to write so much of the book is about people finding ways to speak that lowered the threshold and allowed them to do so when for the same patient, other scenarios were felt to be impossible. Whether that's a patient I write about in the final chapter who refused to go into the room and had to meet only on email and later on IRC interrelay chat if that will take you back to the 1990s, um, it brought me back, uh, you know, but then she goes and meets the same therapist she's been working with for years in the room. The therapist is quite adamant that she work up to this as if it's the goal. And maybe it, it was and should have been, but she couldn't speak when she got there. Or patients of hotlines, users, callers of hotlines who called hotlines precisely because uh, it would be a volunteer on the other end of the line who had no psychiatric or carceral power over them. I'm thinking especially in the case of the queer hotline I write about where, you know, quote unquote, homosexuality is still in the DSM and the police are raiding queer spaces all over San Francisco. It's the lavender scare. Mm -hmm. And it's precisely 
a different space away from kind of feedback that works to, in this case, cut the suicide rate in San Francisco in half within one year. So I think that's a really interesting outgrowth of the kind of CBT, self-monitoring, self-tracking that Natasha Shul writes about um, in her forthcoming book that is really counter to ideas of therapies of insight in depth that I think, you know, are, are sadly lacking in our contemporary world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the emergency hotline section of your book, and I, I found that intriguing. And I know I, from reading your book that you yourself are a volunteer on uh, such a hotline. And I was wondering if your own experience, if you don't mind my asking as a volunteer, helped inform some of the uh, writing of The Distance Cure, because that's that seems like a, a really uh, intense experience, and it must have taught you a lot. Thanks so much for asking that. Um, so I didn't volunteer on a suicide hotline. No. Um, I thought about it because the hotline that Bernard Mays develops in the 1950s is still extant uh, and it's in San Francisco and I could have done. Um, I worked as a crisis counselor on a sexual assault survivor hotline mm -hmm. um, on and off for a really long time and still sometimes pop in to cover people's shifts. Um, and of course it did inform in a more like, let's say pre-conscious way. Um, but the hotline I'm writing about, I was, I was, you know, writing about it in the 1950s. And the 1950s in terms of suicidology, in terms of what's happening in the queer community in that moment are so different from the kinds of concerns that my callers had in our moment, even as there might be some sort of more lasting truths about what it is to make relations uh, over telephone wire or digital signal um, in our present. What I will say is that working on a hotline while writing, if not that exact chapter, some of the other chapters really did remind me constantly, <laughs> experientially, of the limits, uh, as well as the sort of fantastic moments of relating that are possible when you are or are not together in the room. So did my own, for that matter, teleanalysis that was sometimes in person and sometimes not during the same period. Um, but what, what was really neat about having this kind of very personal, ongoing, iterative experience of being a volunteer and then writing about this older history was also to see how little has changed. Uh -huh. So there's a lot in the archive about exploit callers who are, you know, calling and using the hotline, really mining its affordances. Mm -hmm. Like they know volunteers have shift schedules. Like it doesn't change week to week. And so the same caller would call it the same minute every single week, trying to find their dream anonymous voice. Mm -hmm. And this would happen to me uh, on my Wednesday afternoon shift, as long as it was stable. Mm -hmm. I had four people call in oh for the entirety of that shift. Wow. And I had other shifts where I didn't have any repeat callers at all. I must have been like especially helpful or something on Wednesday afternoons. But <laughs> um, and it's good to know about myself. But it was it was really lovely, right? Because then you are in not a contingent um sort of anonymous only quick relation with someone, you're actually having tele-proto or para-therapy week after week after week for free. 
Um, and that was also showing up some 50 years prior in the archive as well. So things like that were really fascinating to me. Okay. And speaking of paratherapy, uh, what about the paratherapeutic call-in radio shows of the <laughs> 1970s and 80s? Uh, I, one of the things that interests me when you talk about it, it was kind of uh, rebranding the distance therapist as an expert friend. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about the concealment of authority here and how that how that worked out? Yeah, you know, this is something I'm fascinated by uh, beyond the therapeutic is just this kind of how we manage uh, the question of the expert at duration for like the last hundred years. Um, in my current book that I'm writing, this is coming up too on the grounds of sort of the the parent and the parenting expert. So in this case, that chapter is is sort of the strangest chapter in the book in that it moves really far from the British Blitz and D.W. Winnicott's radio broadcast to these very different from one another, but yeah, friendly expert pseudo-feminist radio shows in the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. and then again moves to Esther Perel's work today, which, you know, uh, as we are on a podcast, I'm sure many of your listeners are also familiar with Esther Perel's work. Uh, she's just so, so celebrated in that area. Um, so listening to those archives also was really fascinating because, and they're endlessly available online. Uh, there is this constant dance between I'm your friend, tell me more, and I'm the expert so I can give you an answer. And that kind of push pull, which at the same time needs to universalize itself, just like the algorithm needs to be a kind of universal scripted cure. Um, so that other callers don't turn the dial because they feel like it's also speaking to something of theirs too. Or of course they're enjoying overhearing someone else's business. Um, and, and that is a kind of human impulse. So that's part of the larger story of the feminization of therapy across the 20th century, which I just wrote about again, some more in dissent where, you know, there really is this decrease in therapeutic value uh, from the end of Freud mania to our present at the same time as it's still paradoxically and bedevilingly expensive to purchase one's own care. Um, and so the book is really seated in that kind of contradiction. And so is this most recent essay. And it's something I, I want to continue to think about, uh, beyond as well. Super. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that we're getting better at getting more people, more help. And we're getting more pragmatic. I think we've learned to understand like what you say is that distance is not the opposite of presence, but absence is. What I would like to know is what would you like to see happen next in terms of democratizing and scaling of teletherapy? Well, I think we need to have a massive reevaluation around uh, questions of privacy and confidentiality, especially because so many of the people who are doing teletherapy now are doing them on platforms, uh, corporate platforms, insurance-based platforms. And we also need to really pay attention. So that's for the patient. And we also really have to pay attention to the costs on our therapeutic workers. So this book is very patient-centered, but I'm also deeply invested in thinking about our most precarious healthcare workers uh, some of whom are now turning to these platforms uh, in a kind of gigified, always-on way. And I think these are the two central places we have to be really looking out for both patients and therapists alike. I, I agree. I agree. Now, the, your book uh, ends with a coda that sort of 
centers the reader in COVID-19. Um, has anything specific changed since then regarding telehealth? Have you seen, if you had to uh, write a coda to the coda, what would be in that? Oh, Ken, I've had that like both like pleasurable fantasy and nightmare before. <laughs> um where I'm like, well, I hope one day I get to update the book. Oh my goodness. I hope no one ever asked me to update the book um, in 10 years, say. So the, the CODA does end in June, 2020. And yeah, a lot has changed. Namely, the pandemic has gone on and on and on and on and doesn't show any sign of abating really in the US context, right? We've just had um, you know, many records set in the last month or so. And I always have to check what I titled the coda. I'm checking right now because it's like this question of was I hopeful or was I pessimistic? And I think the answer is that I was pessimistic. And the coda is called when distance is everywhere mm-hmm. rather than was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it would be most interesting to see what happens really when conditions become predominantly safe. Um, and they're just not yet uh, for meeting in close quarters in old office buildings. Um, I do think that the kind of push and explosion of telehealth um, is something I'm going to be paying attention to, like the same way that Peloton and Netflix uh, stocks have started to drop. Is that going to be the case for telehealth more broadly considered, or is it really here to stay in this kind of permanent way? Part of my interest in that is that, um, as I said, teletherapy has long been free and low fee and therefore served a a sort of larger group of patients, including those who are marginalized and traditionally underserved. And teletherapy has had this kind of democratizing impulse, which has also meant that the very same most vulnerable and most marginalized patients also have their vulnerabilities exploited quite literally and capitalized on by platforms. So those are the kinds of things that I'll be looking to in the coming year. Uh, The major difference here is that people are working in a hybrid way. They're in and out of their offices, and they're really looking for some guidance as to how to do that. It really changes almost everything about therapy. Okay, one last thing. Throughout the book, as I was reading, what I was looking for was something about virtual reality and its therapeutic possibilities, and I did not see it there. So I want to play your editor one more time and say, what do you make of the virtual reality and its therapeutic possibilities? Do you see that as merely another evolution, or are we heading into something maybe uh, truly new there? Well, so, Ken, that's totally true. And there is one footnote in the book about VR, um, which is to say that, you know, I have great colleagues who have written about this. And it felt like, why come behind them and not just say, look, if you're interested in this, please go see Marissa Brandt's brilliant work, uh, Amit Pinchevsky's really beautiful work on these questions. And I've I've written a little bit about the kind of more avatar-based mental health care for trauma. Uh, I have an essay coming out, and I'll be sure to send it to you. But I think, again if I'm ever asked to address the book in the future, one of the things to pay attention to is the metaverse. I was just in a kind of conversation, a great conversation with a clinician who who is thinking of buying an office via Facebook mm-hmm. in, in the so-called metaverse because it would do all kinds of things for her practice and truly make it international and all of these other things. So because I'm a student of media studies, uh, 
it makes me think about the early conversations of virtuality, uh, not VR, but virtuality around early e-clinics and all of the problems that arose there. Um, so there's a very famous essay called A Rape in Cyberspace. So that essay has been coming up a lot from the 1990s as we think about uh, the liabilities and problems and violences of metaverse. On my mind has been the sort of litmus test around suicidality, uh, which is always the legal test case for any kind of distance therapy, something that surprised me, but is so, uh, and again and again and again at duration in the book. So that's what I'll be, again, looking to and trying to theorize and think about is, again, that kind of notion of what is distant and what is intimate when, of course, it's still embodied, even as we like to fantasize, perhaps, that we are freed from this reality into another. We, we long know that that is not the case. Well, that is a really good answer. And I thank you very much for it. I thank you for your time. And I thank you for your openness and intelligence. This has really bridged the, uh, the distance between Oakland and Boston. And, you know, I just really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you so much. Ken, thank you so much. I'll be thinking about this for a while. Thank you for having me on. EPEM Continuum integrates business experience and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPEM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist in the world. Hannah Zeven, it was a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. Ken Gordon, our producer, was also behind the mic as our interviewer. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Allison Coden. Until the next one, thank you. Thank you.